Luke 16, page 740. Verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you the property? Who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. May God bless the reading of his word. probably know that over the last month or so, um, there was a scandal reported in the mayor's office in Boston. Uh, two of Mayor Walsh's uh, top officials, uh, one was his uh, chief of intergovernmental affairs, the other was his chief of tourism. They were arrested on charges of conspiracy and extortion. Prosecutors described that uh, organizers of this music festival, this biennial a music festival called Boston Calling, uh, originally wanted to staff this music festival, this three-day event, with volunteers. But these two city officials said that uh, their plan actually violated labor laws and they needed to hire, or, or they needed to pay their workers. And the festival organizers agreed, so there, there was no problem there. But then it was reported that these two men further insisted that Boston Calling hire union stagehands for the event, even though the organizers said they didn't need them. Furthermore, the prosecutor said that these two officials told them that if they didn't hire these union workers, they wouldn't get the special permits they needed to stage the festival. The event organizers stated themselves that they only got the permits after they hired nine union workers. So if true, I mean, this was clearly illegal, and we would probably, you know, support and even have encouraged the indictment of these two city officials. 
You know, justice should be served in cases like this. And also one of the big stories this week was, you know, the Hillary Clinton FBI probe, and maybe you're in the group, that feels that justice wasn't served because there's no way Clinton should not have been indicted for what she did in handling the e- her emails. I mean, when someone or someone's used their position of power or authority to defraud or cheat or lie another party, you know, we all feel some type of justice should be served. And that's an issue that we're going to find that's going to come up in our parable for this morning. I know we started last week in a series on the parables of Jesus, and this week's parable that we're going to look at is probably the most difficult parable in the book of Luke, and arguably the most difficult parable that Jesus has told. Some have concluded that this parable is one Jesus certainly could not have told. Others have tried different ways to to smooth over this parable because it seems inconsistent with what Jesus would say. Over time, so many people have tried to explain the parable in so many different ways. One commentator mused that the lack of knowledge available to interpret this parable is inversely proportional to the amount written about it. But we'll see that Jesus uses this parable to greatly challenge us in terms of how we use our resources. So first, let's unpack the parable so that we all understand what's going on in the story. You have this rich guy, and he wasn't just rich. He was very, very, very rich. And we know this because, you know, just from what the parable tells us, these two of his many debtors, we'll see in a moment, they, they owed him a huge amount of money. And he was so rich that he was able to hire a manager to take care of his business dealings. And it seems through the parable that he let this manager be fully in charge for at least one aspect of his business. So at one point, the manager must have shown himself to be very capable and trustworthy to even have gotten such a position. I mean, to be able to have such control over someone's business where you could arrange and negotiate contracts on behalf of the owner, I mean, you wouldn't just give this position to anyone, only someone you could really trust. You know, maybe initially he was someone like Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, when Joseph became a slave in Potiphar's house. And it says... Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And so it seems the the kind of relationship this manager had with this owner was the same that Joseph had with Potiphar. But it says, though, at the beginning of the parable, that something must have gone wrong because the manager was accused of wasting the owner's possessions. And as a charge, he doesn't deny. He admits by his actions that he did it. The Greek verb used for this word waste means squandered. And it's the same word that's used in the parable right before this one, the parable of the prodigal son, for those familiar with the parable, you know, remember that it says the son squandered his possessions on wasteful living. So we aren't told specifically how the manager wasted his owner's possessions. Maybe he was irresponsible and caring for the land. Maybe he was skimming money off the top of, the pro- of what was due his master. Maybe he was charging personal expenses to the master. And we don't know. But either way, he wasted much of the owner's resources. And when the owner finds out, he confronts him and tells him that he's fired. 
But then the master makes a mistake. He tells him he's fired, but he still leaves him in charge for a while, which gives him the ability to do more damage. I have friends, you know, who work at some high-tech companies, and they tell me that when their company lets a person go, they don't give him or her advance warning. They tell them right on the spot they're being let go, and then they give them 10 minutes or so under supervision to collect their things, <clears throat> and then they escort this person out the door. This way, he or she can't, like, do anything to sabotage their systems or steal company files or, you know, put a virus on the computer or anything like that. But this isn't what the owner does. It says he gives them some time to give an accounting, which still gives them time to do harm. And that's exactly what the manager does. The manager, knowing he's going to lose his job and everything that comes with it, including the ability to pay his rent, you know, convinced that he can't become a blue-collar worker and he doesn't want to beg on the streets, he's got to figure out what to do. And in his thinking, he all of a sudden has like a, a eureka moment, and he comes up with a plan. And when you hear the plan and when you, when you think about it, I mean, it's really quite an ingenious plan. He calls in those on the owner's accounts receivables list. He asks the first one, how much do you owe my boss? Some versions say 100 measures or 100 baths of olive oil, which would be about, as you heard in the reading this morning, about 800, 900 gallons of olive oil. This would be the equivalent of about three years' wages for the average worker. Quick, the manager responds, make it 50 measures. He asked the second debtor the same question. How much do you owe my master or my owner? And he says, a hundred measures or cores of wheat. And this would have been about 1,100 bushels. This would have been the equivalent of about seven to eight years' wages for the average worker. And the manager responds, take this debt and make it 80 measures. So when you think about it, he reduces both contracts by roughly the same amount of money, by roughly about one and a half to two years' pay for the average worker. And do understand that it was fairly common to negotiate or renegotiate business contracts. For these agricultural-type contracts, you know, they would typically be paid, understandably, at harvest time. And if things there were things that one could foresee, like bad weather or something else that might seem to cause a poor crop, debts could be renegotiated so that it wouldn't drive the, you know, the, harvest, the farmer out of business. Prices for these commodities would rise anyway if there was you know, less of a crop. So you know, the master or the owner might still make you know, still a sizable amount of money. And it doesn't say that anything like this was the case, that there was any you know, famine or drought or anything like that. But you can imagine how debtors would jump at the idea to have their debt reduced. So they all, you know, he says, quickly, sign this contract. We agree to this reduced price. And they would all jump at the chance. And the parable tells us, he, it says it does, he didn't just do this for two of the debtors, he did this for all of the master's debtors. He reduced every single contract. And being in his current position, he had the legal right and standing to renegotiate all the contracts. His thinking follows this ethic of reciprocity. 
which was an important standard back then. Basically, it's if I do something generous for you, you have to do something generous for me in return. Once the owner kicks this guy out, he could go to all these men that he renegotiated the contracts with and call on a favor. He could knock on their door and he could say, hey, remember when I worked for this guy and you owed him this this much money and I gave you this huge discount? Well, now I need a place to stay. You know, I reduced your debt by about two years' pay. You know, how about letting me stay at your place for two years? And those on the other end of the door would have an obligation to somehow help this guy because of this ethic of reciprocity. And if you think about it, if he did this with all the owner's debtors, you know, he, he may have been set for life. He could knock on maybe 50, 50 guys or more to call in a favor. So when you think about it, you know, this was a, a really ingenious plan. Their irony is that he used unethical means to capitalize on this ethic of reciprocity. But a scheme, of course, gets exposed. And the punchline or the shocker is what happens when he does get caught. The manager, when you think about it, brazenly acted in an immoral, unscrupulous way. He had just conned the rich man out of a fortune. So we should expect that when the plan gets exposed, the owner would call the authorities he would have him arrested and, and thrown in jail for the rest of his life. I mean, it should be like the opening examples that I gave. When these guys committed fraud, you know, they got busted. But the manager, or the owner doesn't do this. In spite of the fact that the manager basically embezzled you know, huge amounts of money from the owner, Jesus says in verse 8 that the master commends him. And this is what has caused many people to like scratch their heads and you know, wonder, you know, is this really something Jesus would say? I mean, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus have the owner commend this guy for his dishonesty and immorality? But when you look at the parable a little more carefully, you'll find that maybe Jesus isn't really doing this. The key to understanding this parable comes in the statement which follows. Verse 8b says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So understand, Jesus isn't commending the manager for being dishonest or unethical. He's commending the manager for his shrewdness. And here's the point he wants to make to his listeners. Be shrewd with your possessions resources to gain lasting rewards. Be shrewd with your resources to gain lasting rewards. Why should we do this? First, we should do this to maintain an eternal perspective. Maintain an eternal perspective. What Jesus is saying is that sometimes people in the world are wiser than followers of Christ. In this case, they show their foresight to plan ahead for the future. The manager knew he was going to be out of a job soon, knew he would be out on the streets if he didn't do something soon. So he had the foresight to think of this drastic plan to provide for his future comfort. In the same way, Jesus says those in the world do the same thing. 
They do what they can to plan for a successful, comfortable future. And I'm not talking about people who try to do this by like doing things like buying lottery tickets or you know attending Trump University or things like that. But you know, there are people, but the people who are disciplined and put their money away in their 401ks and IRAs, those who seek financial advisors and tax counsel. You know, I see all these ads for retirement um, from retirement companies or from financial companies. You know talking about retirement, you know, telling people how they need to plan ahead for retirement. You know, they need to set a goal for what they need. They, they need to understand how much money it's going to cost them and how much they need to survive in their retirement years. And many people work hard to do that. They faithfully set money aside. They're disciplined in their spending. They want to be able to retire and live in a sun-filled, warm area you know, they want to be able to travel the world. They want to be able to enjoy life. And they know they have roughly 30 to 40 years to invest for retirement. So they do what they can to, you know, to, to gain an advantage for, the, for these years. And Jesus is challenging his listeners. He says, you know, people do this even though they have a, just a fixed number of years in this life. But followers of Jesus who know that, yes, we do have a fixed number of years in this life, but afterwards comes eternity, how wise or shrewd are we in planning for that? You know, similar to the parable we looked at last week, which was the friend in need, you could call this parable one of these lesser to greater or how much more parables. Last week, Jesus made the point that if a friend would respond to your rudeness late at night by giving you what you need, how much more would God, your Father, respond to your prayers because he is a good, loving God? So in a similar vein, Jesus is saying, if those in this world are shrewd enough to plan for worldly comforts, how much more should Christ followers who know that eternity lasts much longer than the you know, 80 or so years we have in this life, how much more should they seek to gain eternal rewards? So we need to hit maintain this eternal perspective. And how do we gain eternal rewards? He tells us we do so by working to gain eternal friends and blessings. Jesus says in verses 9 to 11, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? My version, the NIV, uses the term worldly wealth, but other versions of the Bible use the term unrighteous mammon or unrighteous wealth. Mammon or wealth is unrighteous in the sense that it tends to corrupt people and causes them to do things with their mammon or wealth you know, it causes them to purchase and do unrighteous things. So Jesus is saying, instead of using our money and resources for these things, we should use our mammon, we should use our wealth to gain eternal rewards, eternal friends. As other versions put it, friends who will receive you into eternal dwellings. And these are people who are able to welcome you into eternal dwellings 
because of your efforts to advance the gospel and God's kingdom. Notice that this parable follows, you know, chapter 15, which contains the three lost parables, right? In Luke 15, you have the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. One of the points from all of these parables is that God cares about the lost, so we should too. And at the end of your life, when your money is no more, since you can't take it with you, Jesus is prompting you to ask, will you find when you get to heaven, you will have friends who will welcome you there because of your investment in reaching the lost? And using the word mammon, it's not just our money that's being referred to, but all of our possessions and resources. Let me give you a couple examples of people who I read about that work to gain eternal friends. Uh, This month's uh, Christianity Today magazine, the cover story was titled, 20 of the Most Creative Christians We Know. One of these Christians is Alex Medina, who is the creative producer for Reach Records. Some of you may be familiar with Reach Records. If you're not familiar with Reach Records, um, you're probably familiar with some of their artists. Reach Records is the record company uh, for Christian hip-hop artists such as Lecrae and Trip Lee. Um, This company has been very successful in breaking boundaries between the church and the mainstream music industry. Part of the credit goes to Medina. Because Medina, who is the creative producer and director for this company, uses visual arts to complement the music and hopefully, he says, further its missional impact. Medina states, doing good art and pursuing that well allows me to engage non-believers. I want everyone to be enriched. I want the needle of their lives to be moved closer and closer to what is good and ultimately God. And I suspect that as he works in his creative means to draw people from the mainstream music industry to God, some of them will be there to welcome him into eternal dwellings. A few years back, I was also reading in in the Costco magazine. It's funny that this story was in the Costco magazine. And the cover story highlighted one of their fruit vendors. The company is called First Fruits and is owned by Ralph and Cheryl Brochi. They were married, uh, Ralph and Cheryl were married in the late 1960s, and the Brochis, who were raised both in farming families, uh, soon after their marriage bought some cherry trees in central Washington state to farm. And they said things were going well until the 1980s when high interest rates and the bank's refusal to loan them money forced them to have to sell everything. They had to move to southwest Washington and start over, planting apple trees in a place that used to grow just sagebrush. But this change that they described served as a harbinger of internal changes for them. After planting apple trees, they decided to plant some cherry trees, which initially didn't do that well. And they were ready to replace the cherry trees with apple trees, but they decided to give the trees one more chance And in giving the trees one more chance, they decided to give the trees to ministry. Next year, he says, they flourished. Since then, all the profits from those trees have gone to ministries around the world. And after going on a missions trip to Mexico, the Brochis came back knowing that they needed to do more for their mostly 
for their laborers who were mostly Mexican. They first created sustainable work by planting different varieties of apples so that his laborers would have year-round work. Next, they found that many of their work, their female workers left their children locked inside their homes all day, or they pulled older children from school to watch the younger ones. So they built an affordable daycare to address that need. A third problem they saw for the workers which they wanted to address was the poor housing conditions many of their employees faced. Some lived in cars, some lived in poorly kept apartments, some landlords price gouged these workers and took advantage of them. To solve this, the Brochis invested their own money to provide affordable housing. They built a community of 121, mostly three to four bedroom homes in the 1990s. And as of 2009, rent had only been raised twice, with the average rent for a four bedroom home going for about $485 a month. The community has a school, medical care, a chapel, and so on. In addition, they also were able to start a charitable foundation which has aided numerous organizations in India and other countries. Through the charitable work in India, the couple decided to adopt six children from India to add to, their, to the three that they previously had. Ralph shared in the Costco magazine, I struggled to get through high school. It's not like I have any right being in management or business, but God had a plan, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. And I read that story and I thought, that too is how a person gains eternal friends who will welcome them into heaven. If you do this on earth, the implication from verse 11 and 12 is that you will be given eternal blessings after this life. But if you don't faithfully use your resources on earth, God says in verse 12, why would God entrust true riches in heaven to you? So the question is, how are you using your resources to gain eternal friends and eternal blessings? And then a final reason that Jesus wants us to be shrewd with our resources is to show that God is our passion and not things. Jesus tells us in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Understand, God is not against you having money. If you have money such that you, you have the means to live a comfortable life, you know, and I think 99% of us fall into that category, including myself, you don't necessarily need to feel guilty about that. God has blessed you with those resources. But understand that God has increased your resources so that you can show that your resources are not your God. As John Piper writes, God does not prosper a man's business so he can move from a Ford to a Cadillac. God prospers a business so that thousands of unreached people can be reached with the gospel. Which relates back to the second point of, you know, making friends for eternity. Yeah, he says, God has increased your yield so that you can show your yield is not God. 
We want to show our conviction that the many things we can buy in this world are only temporary and are of no lasting value. So we choose to invest in things that will last for eternity. As followers of Christ, we want to display that our passion is for Jesus. We want to display that he is the one who is our all-consuming passion and focus because he is the only one worthy of such. You know, in the use of our social media accounts, I think it's easy to see how we display a passion for many of the things the world has a passion for, such as food and travel, entertainment. But how are we using social media to display a passion for Christ? And I'm not saying that we should just be, you know, like doing things like posting Bible verses or Christian articles on our social media accounts because, you know, that can even seem very judgmental or spiritually prideful. But somehow we need to display a passion that's different from the world. You know, one difficulty of this parable is that when it comes to the, the use of our money, or resources, or talents, it doesn't give any easy answers on how to use these things. It doesn't give specific directions. What it does do is compel us to reflect on what is wise, what is gospel-promoting, what is a kingdom-advancing use of our resources within our context. This is something we must do and act upon. We must show that our passion is for God. We must advance God's kingdom. Not only because God is our passion, not only because we want to receive eternal friends and eternal rewards, but also, as we saw in our Sunday school class this morning, because that is truly the answer for what people are questioning. You know, as Jason prayed, in light of this week's events, when a person is shot dead, even though he was complying with a police officer's request to get his license, but unfortunately he probably happened to be the wrong skin color at the time. And when some disturbed person decides to retaliate by wanting to kill white people, particularly white police officers, you know, people scratch their heads and they cry out, you know, when is all this going to stop? But we as Christ followers know it's not going to completely stop until his kingdom is established. It says, it says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, At that time, God will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will there be war anymore. So when his kingdom is established, we won't need weapons. There won't be fighting. There won't be hate and hostility. So let us sacrifice our resources, our money, our time and our labor to bring about, to help bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Not only to gain eternal friends and rewards, but because we know this is the answer for the evils in this world. As I mentioned, the parable doesn't give easy answers on how to use our resources. But as we hear examples like Alex Medina and the Brochies, as we consider what the parable teaches, be in prayer and discernment 
as to how the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to be shrewd in your investment of resources to advance God's kingdom, to bring about peace and hope, and to gain eternal friends and blessings in heaven. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed all of us with much more than we deserve. And for that, we are grateful. But Lord, we, you tell us in scripture that with more comes more responsibility. And so I pray for each one of us that you will be speaking to us and letting us know how we might use the resources and money and talents that you give us to advance your kingdom, to show that our passion is for you and your kingdom to be established and not just on the things the world seeks to buy and the pleasures they seek. May we show that our passion is to spread your kingdom because we want to see the peace and hope that's desperately needed in this world. Because, too, in doing so, we will gain eternal friends and eternal blessings in heaven. So, so please continue to speak to us on these things and show us how we can be more shrewd than those in the world and not let those in the world show that they are more shrewd than us when it comes to our resources. And it probably seems in Jesus' name, amen.